0: Well, friends, this morning I'd like to draw your attention to Mark chapter ten, verses one to twelve. Mark ten verses one to twelve, and that will be our text this morning. It's a pleasure to be back here in the pulpit, uh, delivering God's word to you. And uh, our text is about marriage this morning. I'll read it in just a moment and pray for God's blessing on our time. Now, some of you may be thinking, "I'm not married, so I can tune this out. This isn't for me." But in fact, uh, this pertains to all of us. All of us are either married or uh, will be married in the future or have been married in the past. Or even if none of those things, all of us are a part of a body of Christ in which a certain vision for marriage and a certain culture of marriage will exist one way or another. And so Jesus' words are for all of us. I'll read our text. Again, ask for God's blessing. Mark 10 verses 1 to 12. And he, of course, here is Jesus. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for His miracles. We thank You for His teaching. We thank You for His cross, which is the source of our redemption and our hope. We pray that these words that You have inspired by Your Spirit would be powerful in our ears. We pray that our hearts would be soft and yielded to hear what You are teaching us. We pray for me that You would grant me faithful proclamation and clarity and that you would do your work in our hearts and in our lives as you intend. You, the one who sees into the depths of our souls. You, you see the exact state of each of us. You know exactly what we need. You know what sins we need to repent of. You know what comfort and encouragement and instruction we need to walk in your ways with joy. We pray you'd shepherd our souls. Work mightily in our midst for your glory. More than we could ask or imagine. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you're you're in a terrible traffic accident. Somebody runs a red light and T-bones you. Your car is destroyed. And then they haul your car away, they haul the wreckage away, and some of your personal possessions were left inside, and so you lose those forever. And then as to your body, you're badly injured, you spend a week recovering in the hospital, and then after that, you spend... Months in physical therapy, regaining bodily function, learning how to walk again. You're out many weeks of work. You burn through all of your vacation time, all of your sick leave, and then you have to fall back on unpaid leave, so you're losing wages. All throughout this time, there's all these opportunities that you lose, things you'd rather be doing, relationships you'd rather be investing in. Your family suffers. Some of your friendships go dormant because you're gone. You're holed up in recovery. In view of all these losses, what would restoration look like? In order to be complete, it would have to account for all of the good things that were forfeited. Such a restoration would include replacing your vehicle and all of your personal possessions that were in the vehicle. Insurance can do that. It would mean paying your medical bills. Insurance should do that too, and potentially your employer might have mercy on you, and they they might restore all of the leave time that you had to burn, and they might keep you uh, keep paying your wages while you're away recovering, and you don't have to lose any of your income. Your body might eventually get back to full strength and function, but even still, in the earthly realm, if you think down to all the details, it's impossible to imagine full restoration from a disaster this great. What about the relational losses? What about all the time and stress that you spent on paperwork and medical charges, just dealing with medical charges, even the ones that are paid for? However elusive total restoration may be in the earthly realm, it is guaranteed in the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is about a total restoration of all the good things that have been lost. And Mark began introducing Jesus' ministry way back in Mark 1, 14-15, introducing Jesus as the one who brings in the kingdom of God. This is the heading over his ministry. We should understand everything else Jesus says and does under the shadow of this truth. It says, In 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The rest of the book is expanding on this point. If Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God, what is that kingdom like? And so to answer that question, Jesus has been challenging every facet of sin's incursion into the world. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, they ushered the whole world into a complex web of disaster and sorrow and pain. We feel the tentacles of sin and all of its downstream effects every day in so many ways. Individual sin in our lives. Bondage to Satan. Illness. Injury. Death. But through his miracles and through his teaching, Jesus is demonstrating that he is here to roll that all back. He is here to conquer that darkness. And this victory will reach its climax in His death on the cross, where He'll pay the ransom price for the sins of His people. So today's passage, Jesus is on the way to that cross, and what we see Him doing is reclaiming another one of the beautiful things that God created, but sin captured and distorted. And that is marriage. Smokey prayed in almost these exact terms just a few moments ago. God's beautiful things that he made and sin has distorted. And marriage is one of these things. There are countless ways that marriage has been and is continually distorted by man. And in varying degrees and in varying ways, some of us have walked in that. Some of us have experienced that. This is a matter that can be very painful and very personal for us. I pray that Christ's words are both challenging and also filled with hope at God's power to restore. In Mark, ever since Peter made this climactic confession back in Mark 8.29, you are the Christ. Ever since then, this middle section of the book has explored the implications of Jesus' identity and specifically asking, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ and what does it mean for those who follow Him? And in the shadow of the coming cross, it has been unexpected things. For Jesus to be the Christ and for those who will follow him, it has meant unexpected things. We've seen in the last couple of chapters that his kingdom is not for the earthly great ones, but it's actually for the humble, for servants. And we've seen that disciples are those who embrace self-denial and total devotion to God. And so today's passage and the next two, this is the first of a series of three that will continue answering this question about discipleship. Given who Jesus is, what does it look like? What does it mean to be a follower of his? And Jesus will redefine the most intimate and profound realms of life. Marriage, children, and our wealth and possessions. He is getting into our kitchen. He is going all the way down to the dearest things. So in today's passage, what we see in these verses is that Jesus restores marriage to its original, tender-hearted beauty. That is the main thing going on here. Jesus restores marriage to its original, tender-hearted beauty. And we're going to look at this text as a series of three restorations, three individual restorations that Jesus makes He's disentangling this knot of how marriage has been distorted by sin. So the first restoration we see is verses 1 to 5. From what we can get to what God wants. That's the first matter of restoration. Going from what we can get to what God wants. I'll read these verses again. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, Jesus has most recently been ministering in his home region of Galilee in the north. In verse 1, we see him moving south into Judea, and he's ultimately going to go to Jerusalem in the cross here in this journey. But now in the south, he's in hostile territory. Judea is the hotbed of the Pharisees, which is a religious party that has arisen in opposition to him, just as we see here in verse 2. And then this beyond the Jordan in verse 1 is the territory of Herod Antipas, who executed John the Baptist back in chapter 6. We heard about this a while ago when we were in chapter 6. And here's why that matters, being in the region of Herod Antipas who executed John the Baptist. In verse 2, the Pharisees ask a question, they say, in order to test him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, why is this question a test? What is so uh, entrapping or treacherous about a question like this? Well, They're probably trying to lure him into political danger. Because, as chapter 6 tells us, Herod had married his brother Philip's wife after an apparent divorce. And John the Baptist, good prophet that he was, issued God's denouncement against this action, saying, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. How did that turn out for John the Baptist? He lost his head over that, he was executed. And so the Pharisees probably knew enough about Jesus and they probably knew enough about what he believed and taught to suspect that he was against divorce. So here in Herod's territory, it's time to smoke him out. Will he back down in self-protecting cowardice or will he step into danger and risk uh, sharing John's fate? So that's an important background for what's going on with this question. And another important background for this question is the Old Testament text that Jesus and the Pharisees, you can tell they're discussing what Moses said. What is the text they have in mind in verses 3 to 5? Well, it's the first few verses of Deuteronomy 24. The whole passage that deals with this is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'll read the first two of those verses. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and it goes on, I'll just summarize, it goes on to say she can't then divorce that second husband and go back to the first. But this is the provision for divorce that the law contains. And among the Jews in Jesus' day, there was a lively debate going on about what qualifies some indecency. If he finds some indecency in her. In other words, what are the allowable grounds for divorce? Did it have to be, there was a kind of a stricter view, did it have to be something like adultery? Or was it more permissive, including all sorts of things a husband might not like about his wife? These were two schools of thought that debated In Jesus' day. By the way, in Jewish law, it was only the husband who could divorce. But as we'll see, Jesus does not fear Herod. And Jesus does not let himself get sucked into the vortex of this rabbinic debate. He is after bigger game. He is on a different page than his challengers. And to see this, we have to uh, tune into this interplay between the language of permission that they use... In the language of commandment that he uses. Do you catch this in verse 2? They come at him asking, is it lawful? That is, is it permitted? Then in verse 3, Jesus, what did Moses command? Now, Then in verse 4, they answered, Moses allowed. And in verse 5, Moses wrote you this commandment. And the hinge of all this is right there in verse 5 when Jesus says the command to divorce or the command about divorce. I should, it's a very important correction. The commandment about divorce was because of Israel's hardness of heart. Just think about it this way. They're asking, this is the question essentially they're asking. Are we allowed to get a divorce? We want to be able to divorce. Can we get God's stamp of approval? if you're sifting through the law of Moses looking for that stamp of approval, you can find it in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4. through If that's what you want, this is where you find it. But if you read that text closely, you will find neither a commandment nor an endorsement of divorce. What he says there is, if he finds something indecent in her, and if he writes a certificate of divorce, etc., and by the way, that certificate was a measure of legal protection for the diverse, divorced wife, so she couldn't be accused of adultery if later she went and married another man. See, Jesus is not interested in their how wide is the loophole debate. That's what they are interested in, how wide is this, uh, this ability to divorce. He doesn't, he's not entering that. Here's his point. Divorce is bad. The law doesn't command it, the law doesn't commend it, the law doesn't endorse it in any way. It merely recognizes that east of Eden, divorces are going to happen, and so it regulates this sad fact of life. And Deuteronomy, if you look more broadly, Deuteronomy is clear about Israel's hardness of heart. In 29.4, Moses tells them, but to this day the lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear deuteronomy if you're here in the old testament survey you heard that the theology of the heart is a major theme of deuteronomy and you must love the lord with all your heart and yet deuteronomy itself says that you don't have the heart for it he describes their hearts as uncircumcised which means not marked out for god not responsive to him and so because Israel has hard hearts, like all of us naturally from birth, we're no different, God gave them this law to limit the damage of divorce. He tells them, okay, if you're going to divorce your wife, at least do it like this and not like that. But when Jesus says that God gave this command because of their hardness of heart, He's not just making a historical point about uh, that wilderness generation that received Deuteronomy. He's pointing His finger at His hearers. Now, why would they ask a question like that? Again, this is how they're operating. They want something. Divorce. And so they're approaching God's law asking, can we find permission for what we want to do? Soft hearts before God don't do that. Soft hearts don't ask, I can do this, right God? Let me find a verse that I can use to justify doing this. No, soft hearts are totally surrendered to God. Soft hearts open up to him and say, God, what would you have me do? What's your design? What's your will? The Pharisees are approaching God like a husband approaching his wife saying, I'm going to go grab a few drinks with the guys. That's okay with you, right, babe? We all know that's a very different question than saying, Dear, what do you think about me going out with my friends tonight? Or, Dear, did you have any expectations about our evening? We all know that's a very different way of asking, right? You don't mind if I do X, do you? That's the kind of thing they're doing here. And even before getting into marriage itself, what do we learn about Jesus here? His kingdom and his teaching are only compatible with soft hearts. Remember his haunting question back in 817, Mark 817. He asked his disciples, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? What about us? Do we approach life asking, What am I allowed to get away with? What can I find a verse or construct an argument to permit me to do? Or do we open our hand and open our Bible and ask, what does God want with my life? Do we ask hard-hearted questions or soft-hearted questions? Do we press on God's moral teaching like a fence line, trying to search for weak points and gaps to let in our own desires? The difference between those two approaches will radically shape the way that we hear God's words and conform our lives to them. So which do you do? The last text we looked at in Mark at the end of chapter 9, we heard that following Jesus means yielding our entire lives to Him by warring against sin and temptation. There was this warning about if your hand causes you to sin, be zealous, cut it off. Basically, be aggressive about fighting temptation because you belong wholly to Christ. At all costs, we give ourselves over to Jesus. And the same point is being made here. Disciples of Christ yield themselves freely to God and His teaching With all our hearts. Now I'm not saying we don't struggle to walk this out. I'm not saying we don't fail. I'm not saying that we don't mature gradually in degrees of obedience. But this is the road of discipleship. This soft hearted uh, yielding of one's entire self over to God. What Jesus has to say about marriage just won't work in our lives. If our hearts are holding out on God. Only a heart that is sweetly softened and yielded over to its creator can see the the beauty in what God wants in what God has designed and be able to walk in it. So that's the first restoration from what we can get to what God wants. And this leads, speaking of the design of marriage, this leads to the second restoration which is from sovereign self to one flesh mystery. From sovereign self To one flesh mystery. This is verses 6 to 9. Jesus continues. He said, remember, because of your hardness of heart, He told you that in Deuteronomy 24, but he, He continues now. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. Back in verse 3, remember, we heard Jesus ask, what did Moses command you? And, and he, he's trying to nudge them from the realm of what uh, what are we allowed to do to what did God through Moses tell you to do? What does God actually want? That's what his, his keep using the word command, he's trying to nudge it that way. What does God want? And in verses 6 to 9, he proceeds to answer his own question. And he begins by going back to the beginning. He quotes Genesis 1.27 in verse 6. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24 in verses 7 and 8. Now Moses didn't just write Deuteronomy, he also wrote Genesis. And it's very important that Jesus reaches all the way back to the beginning before a very important event, man's fall into sin. To understand God's creative intent. He reaches back before the fall. Remember, he's restoring all the good things that God made and sin ruined. And marriage is one such thing. Uh, To understand marriage with a soft heart the way that God intended, you don't look at the downstream laws that are regulating divorce in a fallen world. You look upstream at the source before the pollution of sin entered. And you say, what was God after here? Jesus' kingdom is a new creation. So he's asking, well, what was the intent of the old creation? So consider verse 6. God made them humans in his image, male and female. And you notice that therefore, in verse 7. Notice that, therefore. So our maleness and femaleness signals our fitness for what verses 7 and 8 talk about. The man holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's interesting. He could have just said, Genesis 2 says, the two shall become one flesh. Why go back to Genesis 1 and say he made them male and female? Well, he's making the strongest possible argument that marriage is something God made, not us. That is the point he's driving home. He's making the strong argument. Marriage is something God made, not us. Our society views marriage as a social contract invented by people. It's very old. It stretches back into time immemorial. But it is just something that people came up with. But God tells a different story. First of all, even our gendered existence as male and female is crafted to make us fit for a certain kind of union. God made us to join us. And then when we do join together, it it forms a profound new thing that Genesis calls one flesh. We didn't come up with marriage, God came up with marriage. And further, God even made us, in a certain sense, for marriage. It's like male and female pipe fittings. Okay, the, the design of each one, the design of each part, implies a certain way of coupling together. And the united picture makes the fullest sense of why each individual is designed the way that it is. That's the point Jesus is making here about stretching back to Genesis 1 and saying he made them male and female, therefore they'll be joined. Now, this isn't just true sexually. This is true in every aspect of our gendered identity as male and female. Now this is not to deny the full humanity at all of the unmarried. Your completeness as a man or woman does not depend on you being personally married. But these design features which our race as a whole exhibits point to a certain kind of union. So marriage is a real God-made union between husband and wife. It is not a man-made social contract. It's not an institution defined by human societies or human governments. And this explains why neither gender nor marriage is something that man can fiddle with. We didn't make gender and marriage. And so they're not ours to define. Our kind and good creator made them. And so our kind and good creator uh, claims gender and marriage as his To define and regulate. Mankind is male and female. This is self-evident. And this is God's very good creation. Mankind is fitted for marriage. Male and female. This is once again God's self-evident and very good creation. So to redefine gender and marriage... Isn't an expression of liberation or of human rights or of compassion. It is a declaration of war against our Creator. And make no mistake, that is precisely what is happening. When societies and governments try to enshrine revised understandings of gender as non-binary, or of marriage as something that two men or two women can enter. This is what Psalm 22 talks about. The kings of the of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah but looking back at Jesus' words he draws this explosive conclusion in verses 8 and 9 he says so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man separate this is God's created design marriage is a beautiful mysterious one flesh union it's bigger than us we enter it, but we don't make it. And we're not free to end it. Now, if we read this in concert with the whole canon of Scripture, we come to learn the grandest purpose of marriage in Ephesians 5, 31-32, which also quotes from Genesis two twenty-four. Paul writes this, "...therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." By now familiar words, he goes on and says, "...this mystery is profound." And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery of the one flesh union refers to Christ and the church. Now we can better see why Jesus is so zealous for this point. This one flesh union is pointing to something else. It's a real thing and it's important in its own right. But even more importantly, it's an arrow to an even deeper thing. And that deeper thing is the spiritual and eternal union between Christ and his church. And so friends, this is very good news for us. Because we may be tempted to read Jesus' words in a hard-hearted way, and so we receive them as a burden. He's saying no to us. He's slapping our wrists. He's taking something away. But in truth, he's preserving the most vivid picture of of the happiest news that's ever dawned upon our darkened world. Christ has come to die for His church. Christ has come to enfold us into His faithful, never-changing love, the love that He has shared forever with His Father in the Holy Spirit. So the question for us is, how could we tarnish that picture? How could we lie to ourselves and to the world about a love that shines so brightly? This is bigger than than us Jesus isn't asking what we want he's telling us how God made us but even better than that he's not just flexing authority he is inviting us to take part in the whole canon of scripture he's inviting us to participate in this grand and beautiful picture of his heavenly love for the church and both in Jesus day and ours these words come out swinging against our selfishness He is attacking our autonomous self-understanding. You are not God, and I am not God. And there are two reasons why hard hearts before God threaten marriage so gravely. The first is that when I harden myself to God, I begin putting myself in His place. I begin becoming my God, and I start living for myself and not for the God who is And this means that I become dull to the concern for God's will. I stop asking, what does God want for me? And I start thinking like these Pharisees who ask questions like, what can I get away with? What can I justify for myself? What am I entitled to? And the second reason that hard hearts threaten marriage is that having a hard heart makes it increasingly difficult to carry out the kind of costly, self-denying virtues that marriage requires. Preserving marriage is hard work. Uh, Many of us who have been married for a while have felt in various ways the creeping effects of a hardened heart. We may lack mercy toward our spouse. We may run out of patience with our spouse. We might withhold forbearance. We might fail to forgive. We might think far more often about our own desires than about the needs and wants of our spouse. What about you? This morning, is your hardness of heart straining? or fracturing, or even suffocating your marriage. Let Christ's words be a summons to repentance. And in order to further beckon us in that direction, listen to both a word of motivation and a word of hope. The word of motivation is this. God loves to commune with soft, broken, and contrite hearts. That is His favorite place. Even hearts that have failed deeply and fallen short of God's design for marriage. Psalm thirty four eighteen, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm fifty one seventeen the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah six two. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Matthew 5.3 Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God is sweetly beckoning us all to a softness of heart that alone is fit to commune with him. So that's a word of motivation for us. And here's the word of hope. God himself provides the new heart that these commandments require. This new heart comes from none other than God himself. This is the promise of the new covenant in Christ. In Ezekiel thirty-six thirty-six, he promises this. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. So God's plan for marriage is infinitely higher and better than all of our human corruptions of it. And we can't live in this design with hard and proud hearts. That turn us away from God. And that make us brittle toward our spouses. No, we need the new Softened heart that God loves to commune with and that God alone can give. So Jesus restores us from sovereign self to one flesh mystery. The third and final restoration we'll look at is this in verses 10 to 12 from human fickleness to godly fidelity. From human fickleness to godly fidelity. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This has happened before in Mark. The disciples follow up Jesus' public teaching with requests for more clarity. They are no less shocked by his words than anyone else. And because they're insiders, this is a motif that's run through Mark, because they're insiders, they're on a journey of faith with Jesus, and so inside the house, it's kind of a symbolic location, they care enough to ask him for more understanding. And so more understanding is what their fledgling faith will receive. And in verses 11 and 12, Jesus just teases out further the implications of what he declared in verse 9. What God has joined, let not man Separate. This is the consequence of what he said about the unbreakable one flesh union. And to put it simply, the point he's making is that divorce is not a legitimate escape from the obligations of marital fidelity. A husband or a wife may feel that they have the right to bail on their marriage and start over with someone else, but God does not see it that way. He sees that second marriage as an act of adultery against the first spouse. I do not recognize that divorce. And so now you're committing adultery. The most obvious takeaway from this text is stay married. Another important implication for all of us as the body of Christ, whether we're young or old, whether we're single or married, is to be champions for one another's marriages. Stay married and help others stay married. Encourage each other's marriages. Support each other. Pray for each other. Older couples, check in on younger couples. You know the struggles and temptations. Many of us who are married, may all of us who are married, find this morning a freshly resolved will that we will not disrupt the the marriage union, either ours or any other. May all of us be resolved today. We will not do that. Woe to the one who separates what God has joined together. Now, if you're familiar with parallel texts from the Gospels and the broader biblical teaching on marriage, then you know that this is not the whole story. Uh, Matthew's parallel in Matthew 19.9 reads, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And that exception seems important, right? If one spouse has committed infidelity, they have already broken the union. They've already broken that covenant. Therefore, the divorcing spouse is not breaking what is already broken. And other texts of Scripture support the same idea. Basically, if one spouse has gone ahead and broken the marriage covenant, you are free to call it broken. And in that case, the spouse is free to remarry. And practically speaking, at this point, all sorts of practical what ifs can bubble to the surface in this issue of how does the Bible treat divorce and remarriage? And it can get complicated. And like I said, other texts of scripture do carve out limited exceptions to this absolute prohibition. And those exceptions are real and appropriate. We shouldn't look down at all on someone who remarries after being left by an adulterous spouse. And by the way, if in your own life you have any questions about some of these what ifs, how it would look for you, please, we pastor elders would love to walk alongside with you in that and provide biblical counsel for you. But let's all be careful It goes back to that hard-hearted problem. We can err by seeking a way out rather than yielding ourselves fully to God's design. Don't go running off into exceptions and majoring on the exceptions. Because here in Mark, the Spirit-inspired author of this particular text didn't choose to name any. And so we should let this stark prohibition stand as it is and shock our senses. Yes, there is a fuller conversation to have about cases like adultery or things like abuse. But Jesus' words here are the essential foundation for all those thorny what-ifs. And again, God is searching us. Are you yielded to my will and to my design? Or are you looking for a way to get what you want? And maybe you feel trapped in a horrible marriage. And maybe you're thinking... This can't be what God wants for me. Isn't God loving? Isn't God good? How could He want me enslaved like this? And the answer is we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, God is good. Yes, God is loving. But He alone knows the design plan with perfect clarity. And we will see, if we walk this road, we will see that we will be the happiest and most flourishing. Not only when we stay married, but when we do so with soft hearts that are yielded to God. Maybe you've experienced this in marriage or in some other realm of life. That it's something that felt like confinement and a burden from God in His commands, it felt like they were stifling you and limiting you, they turned out to be the path of a more profound joy than what your fleeting desires sought. Will you trust God for what you can't see? If you've ever lived in a college dorm, maybe some of you do now, you may be able to relate to the happy freedom of the dorm lifestyle. You're out on your own, away from your parents, confining rules, staying up late till 4am, goofing around, junk food, gaming, movies, maybe a little bit of study on accident the, the night before a test. This feels like the good life. But if you live long enough, eventually you start to realize this is actually a miserable way to live. You start to mature. You start craving an earlier bedtime. You start wanting more refreshing sleep. You want, you, you want a more wholesome diet. You start realizing you're wasting a lot of time. You find that more self-control leads to a deeper enjoyment of life. Sorry, college students, no shade intended here, but you will find this as you mature in life, that, that, that discipline and self-control leads to deeper enjoyment of life. And that's just a small taste of Jesus' prohibition against divorce here. He is calling us to a costlier but far greater joy than the popcorn and candy escape that our fickle hearts may desire. Now, I'm not promising that your spouse will get it. I'm not promising your spouse will change and make your life easier or more pleasant. I am telling you that God's word promises that greater pleasures always await the obedient. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the teaching of the Lord. Flourishing are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, says Psalm 119. Will you trust him? Jesus restores marriage to its original tender-hearted beauty. Christian, lift the eyes of your heart to the beauty of Christ and his union with the church that marriage symbolizes. Enjoy Jesus' unfailing love for you and become a champion of lifelong marriage, whether yours or other people's. Let those of us who are married stay married. But even more than that, let's eagerly pursue the softness of heart before the Lord that equips us to love our spouse as we must, with mercy and patience and kindness and quickness to forgive to modify something that's been said uh, by by another in a different way. For every look at how little your spouse loves you, take ten looks at Christ and how deeply He loves you. Let His love soften you and keep you in that lowly, contrite frame of heart that makes marriage thrive. For all of us, let's champion each other's marriages with encouragement and counsel and prayer. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, I don't want you simply coming away with moral instruction. I don't want you coming away going simply, oh, I better not get divorced, or Christians believe that they shouldn't get divorced. You need to see a much fuller picture. First of all, understand that the hardness of heart that Jesus talks about here, even now, separates you from God in sin. You are not yielded to your Creator. You have gone your own way like a straying sheep. But second, consider Christ. Consider how he's come to restore and how he's come to redeem and he's come to renew. He came to die on the cross for sinners and thereby to usher believers into a new creation where all the ruined things get renewed. And even if your sin has left your marriage in shambles, consider the great marriage of which all other marriages are but a faint shadow. The bride says, with heart brimming, with confidence in her lover's vibrant affection for her, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Ruin calls for restoration. Insurance companies and hospitals can help after a car wreck. But weary and guilty souls long for a total renewal of all the good things that sin has ruined. So come and place your trust in Christ the Savior, Christ the Forgiver, Christ the Restorer. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, our Creator. We praise your design of us in your image. We praise you for this picture of marriage. It is a source of great joy and a place of great beauty, but it is also a place of great pain, a, great, a place of great sin and evil. We thank you for sending Christ to redeem us. To redeem us individually and to restore us in this new kingdom, this new creation. We pray that everyone here, whatever our current state with regard to marriage, whatever our past, we pray that all eyes would be on Jesus Christ in humble hearted faith. We pray that the marriages in our midst as a as a body of Christ would be characterized by a softness of heart that is yielded entirely to you. And in A love that that is modeled after Jesus himself in the way that we uh, relate to our spouses. And we pray that all who are lost this morning hearing this message would be gripped by this vision of Christ. The great bridegroom whose love is so worthy of being proclaimed and seen. We pray all this in his name. Amen.